nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, more on the continuing story of the container breach. Some would call it an explosion. That leaked radiation at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, site in Carlsbad, New Mexico. We again talk with Don Hancock of Southwest Information and Resource Center, who clarifies some information that we shared on the show last week. And continuing our coverage of nuclear waste issues in the Southwest, Karen Haddon of Seed Coalition in Texas fills us in on the manipulations surrounding the Waste Control Specialists, or WCS, site, which has been accepting the radioactive waste from Los Alamos National Laboratories that WIP has been forced to turn away from the end and send to the stable. You'll hear from these genuine experts, plus numbnuts of the week, activist shout-out, and more nuclear information than is safe to share at a family dinner. All coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 30th, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Starting off with Japan this week, where word keeps leaking out, you should pardon the expression, from Fukushima. There has been an unprecedented attempt by four Fukushima Daiichi workers to sue TEPCO for unpaid wages. The four men, who wore masks in court for fear of reprisals from their employers, said, A year ago, the Prime Minister told the world that Fukushima was under control. But that's not the case, according to Tsuguo Hirota, who spoke with a reporter from Reuters. He went on, It's becoming a place for amateurs only, and that has to worry anyone who lives near the plant. According to NPR, About 100 out of the 4,000 people working at the plant every day are TEPCO employees, but the rest are subcontractors. One TEPCO worker who was on the job when the quake and tsunami hit agreed to talk anonymously and said, It's well known at the plant that shoddy work is being done. Many problems inside the Fukushima plant go unreported. Time magazine correspondent Hannah Beach reported, What's very strange about walking into Fukushima Daiichi is that it feels completely dead. You don't see that many people moving around. And those people that you do see, there's not a palpable sense of urgency. They may not be getting the full backing that they should be to be able to do this. And I love this wording from NHK, the Japanese broadcaster. They reported that a Fukushima Daiichi worker's attorney warns that the current system could endanger the entire decommissioning process. You can't decommission a wreck. You can only decommission an intact nuclear reactor. What they are doing is trying to mitigate an ongoing disaster site. But anyway, this attorney said... TEPCO should be held accountable for turning a blind eye. It needs to improve labor conditions. Otherwise, the situation will make it impossible to secure enough workers to deal with the nuclear accident. While Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, has been publishing readings of cesium in the water near the plant that seem unusually low, the seabed is another story. Long-lived radioactivity doesn't just go away. It moves somewhere else. Earlier this summer, Japan's nuclear regulator and a team of researchers completed a set of seafloor monitoring. They found that areas of the seafloor where there is more muddy soil in low spots 
tended to concentrate cesium-137. The cesium is assumed to have bonded with the mud particles. The research corridor that they checked was roughly up to 25 kilometers or 15 miles out to sea. This is a hot one. Kyushu Electric Power Company is going to suspend grid access for new renewable energy producers. It's simply going to stop responding to applications from them while it reviews how much more clean energy it's capable of handling. The restriction began on September 25th, and according to the utility's deputy general manager, Akihiko Shinkei, the utility will study in the next several months how much more renewable energy capacity it can bear. Oh, stop! Stop! I can't bear it! No more! No more renewable energy, please! Under Japan's incentives to develop sources of clean energy, utility operators are required to buy clean energy at terms and prices set by the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, or METI. The incentives, introduced in July of 2012, have led to a boom in solar installations across Japan. You'd think that would be a good thing. But the power grid in Japan isn't equipped to handle the clean energy influx, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance analysts. They wrote this up in an August 2013 report. Grid and market constraints will limit development, the report said. So in Japan, you can use solar to generate electricity, You just can't use the grid to get it where it needs to go. This next story is numbnuts adjacent. It just missed. And it's about a formal cooperation agreement that has been signed between TEPCO and the UK's Sellafield Nuclear Processing Plant to share their experience and expertise. A case of the blind leading the blind. The two companies have worked together to build a relationship with exchanges of information and visits between the two sites, otherwise known as paid political junkets. The four main areas set for information exchange are site management, yeah, TEPCO is so good at that, environmental monitoring, (laughs) radiation protection, oh, that's a good one, and project delivery and design engineering. This between the company that operates the site of the worst and still ongoing nuclear disaster in Japan and Sellafield, which earlier this year had such elevated radiation levels that staff were told to stay home and has been labeled by The Guardian in England the most hazardous place in Europe. These two bonehead groups are going to share their expertise Except for the padding and bloviating? That should take about a nano. But like I said, that was runner-up, because here is this week's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None that's out of week. Here's the story a lot of us have been talking about this week, because it is so mm-mm good. That's because two artists known as the United Brothers are making soup sourced from vegetables brought directly from Fukushima, and they will be offering for free as part of the Freeze Art Fair in London. Ai Araka and his brother Tubu, yes, they're real brothers, have assured the organizers of the art fair that this soup is going to be safe to eat because the vegetables have been cleared by the Japanese Farmers Association. The two young men are from Iwaki and Fukushima and will fly their mother over from Japan to make noodle soup each day during the fair, which will be offered to those who are at the fair for free. Freeze director Matthew Slotover said with only a slight edge in his voice, they are flying in vegetables. They've been tested. They're safe. But how does anyone know? Nuclear Hot Seat Special Correspondent Nausicaa Weeps asks, how do they test vegetables for radioactive contamination? In her understanding, a gamma spectrum analysis plus an alpha particle spectrograph analysis are what is required to properly test for Fukushima contamination in farm produce. 
And, of course, she brings up there's the problem of hot spots, uneven disposition of contamination, so that radishes, daikon radishes are a major portion of this soup, so that radishes grown on one part of a field will test below the legal limit, while others in another area may test way above. As the Freeze Catalog states, the gift of food represents the essence of hospitality, sharing, and humanity. However, the soup United Brothers offers is laced with the, parentheses, conceptual, possibility that it may be radioactive. So I've labeled this a numbnuts of the week because it really is an insane idea. But at the same time, it's a brilliant piece of conceptual art with the potential to raise people's consciousness. If only someone from an anti-nuclear group would go there and make certain that some kind of notification was put out about the need for the analysis and that it probably is not done because those are very expensive pieces of equipment. So there's no way to know and no way to trust. And besides, they'll allow as legal up to 100 becquerels of cesium per kilogram of food And you don't want to be eating that much either. So with a little tweaks, this could be a real consciousness raiser for people who don't usually have any kind of connection with the nuclear issue. And again, because the idea is so outlandish, I had no choice but to label it this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Gamma Spectrum Analysis Plus Alpha Particle Spectrograph Analysis. I must remember those two terms the next time somebody offers to take me out for sushi. Bringing it back home to the U.S. of A., where Dominion Virginia Power has found two, count them, two damaged nuclear fuel rods in its North Anna 2 power plant during the reactor's scheduled refueling earlier this month. About 15 uranium fuel pellets came out of two rods and entered the reactor cooling system. Mm-mm-mm. David A. Heacock, president and chief nuclear officer as well as spokesmodel of Dominion Nuclear, said the damage has, quote, no radiological consequences to it, end quote. Isn't that what they always say? Roger Hanna A spokesmodel for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in Atlanta, protecting people and the environment, snark, 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 says it's a fairly low safety significance issue. Even though the fuel is damaged, it's in a closed system, so you don't have the concern for an environmental release of radioactivity. Is that what the workers are saying? The reason for the problem is that cooling water flows through the reactor's internal cooling baffles at the rate of 300,000 gallons a minute. And in the past 18 months, a jet of water has poured through a millimeter-sized hole in the fuel rod's support structure and was squirting the water all over the rods. That flow started them spinning and vibrating, and the rods rubbed up against the support structures, cutting grooves in them and eventually causing their tops to crack off. Hey, San Onofre, remember San Onofre? Remember the steam generators that were flawed? Isn't this afraid of what we thought was going to happen there? And here it is happening at North Anna. Seven or eight, they're not sure, fuel pellets came out of each of the two zirconium alloy fuel rods. Dominion's Heacock said, We have accounted for about eight of the pellets. About? And there were approximately 15. Where are the other seven? He said, we believe the rest have been pulverized in the normal filtration mechanism, which will recover the nuclear material. Do you believe these guys? That was not rhetorical. Dominion's mouthpiece Heacock went on to say, the long-term fix is to modify the way the water flows in the baffle. That modification will be done either in 18 months at the unit's next refueling or during the refueling after that. Guys, 
there's a problem at a nuclear reactor that damaged fuel rods that contain uranium and all spent fuel rods contain weapons-grade plutonium. You're going to risk this thing happening again, oh, a year and a half from now, maybe three years from now. Eh, we'll get around to it. Oh, my God. Now, here's the piece that nobody's talking about. The failed fuel assembly had been used during three 18-month operating cycles at North Anna. North Anna was the site of the East Coast earthquake that exceeded design basis for the plant. It took place on August 23rd of 2011. So, so these damaged fuel rods have already been through two 18-month operating cycles since the earthquake. Was there a connection? How did that one millimeter hole get there? Was it possibly created or set up to be created by the 5.8 earthquake? Then there's this final item that radiation dose rates around the reactor are 4% lower than they were 18 months ago. So what, 18 months ago were they elevated? Or have they genuinely been reduced? And why are they there to begin with? There should be no radiation coming out into the environment from a nuclear power plant. It's all numb nuts. And now Exelon Corporation is urging Illinois state utility regulators to press for changes in power markets that would boost revenues at the company's nuclear power fleet in that state by about $580 million. Exelon Senior Vice President Kathleen Barron, who is also a spokesmodel, put a price tag on what the Chicago-based nuclear giant believes is necessary to keep at least most plants in Illinois open. This would be an increase of about $6 per megawatt hour for the ratepayers. How much solar and how much wind from the Windy City could be harnessed to take the place of all that nuclear for $580 million. Nobody seems to be thinking this through. A respected publication that reports on the nation's nuclear labs says that there's been a shakeup at Los Alamos National Laboratory in connection with the lab's role in the radiation leak at the country's nuclear waste dump near Carlsbad. We're going to have a full story on this, but I wanted to give you the background here that the director of Los Alamos, Charlie McMillan, said on Thursday, September 25th, that four managers had been relieved of their duties in relation to the site's transuranic waste processing problems. These managers have apparently not been fired, but simply reassigned. You'll hear more about this during our interview with Don Hancock. The sailors from the USS Ronald Reagan who were hit with such a catastrophic dose of radiation from Fukushima while on an humanitarian aid issue, remain in limbo as regards the judgment of Judge Janice Lynn Sammartino. She's the one who has to rule on the combination of TEPCO's motion to dismiss with the attorney's motion to name GE, Hitachi, Ibasco, and Toshiba as defendants, as well as Tokyo Electric Power Company. Even though attorneys Paul Garner and Charles Bonner faced her in court on August 25th and again on September 25th, the requests remain under submission, and so we are awaiting her decision. An obscure posting by CalCoastNews.com missed the point, and there may be a big one. There was a brief item about dead birds showing up at Pismo Beach with a warning to people to stay away from there. Fish and wildlife officials say the dead birds can be hazardous to pets and children. As regards the reason for these deaths, Fish and Wildlife Warden Ryan Hansen speculated that the cause could be anything from fish bait attracting the birds to shore, the drought, or even ships hitting a flock of birds. However, there were three words that were not mentioned. The first is the F word, Fukushima. And there was no questioning of the possibility that perhaps radiation in the water or in the fish the birds were eating may have contributed to their demise. 
But the other one, which is really an elephant in the living room, is that Pismo Beach is another name for the area known as Avila Beach. And Avila Beach is only two miles from the other two words, Diablo Canyon. Yes, the site of the dead birds is only two miles away from a nuclear reactor. And nobody has looked into the possibility that there might be a connection there. Here's hoping someone does, and soon. And this international story from World Nuclear News, my favorite glimpse into the dark side. Pakistan would like to play a part in the international nuclear industry, according to the country's statement to the International Atomic Energy Agency's 58th General Conference. The country already has three operating reactors, and two further units are under construction at Kashma under a long-term cooperation agreement with China. Now, due to its nuclear weapons program and its status as a non-signator to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, Pakistan has been largely excluded from trade in nuclear plant or materials with other countries. China, notably, has forged strong nuclear energy links with Pakistan, and the country is a major recipient of technical cooperation from, ta-da, the IAEA, as well as being a member of the IAEA Board of Governors. Nuclear bombs on the ground in Pakistan. What could go wrong? And that was also not rhetorical. And there was a story published by the Daily Mail in the UK revealing a madcap 1960s plan to use 23 nuclear bombs to blast through California mountains to make way for a highway. We'll have a link to this unbelievable article up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 171. We'll have our featured interviews in just a moment, but first, yes, I glow in the dark. One mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond is my nuclear memoir ebook on what it means to find oneself only one mile from a nuclear reactor meltdown while it's happening. Mm-mm-mm, lots of fun. It's available on Amazon Kindle, where it has received 11, count them, 11 five-star reviews with no naysayers. Woohoo! You can buy it for about the same as the cost of Starbucks, and I promise as soon as I figure out how to change the pricing on it, I will, and we'll have a special, and you'll all get it, and it'll be wonderful. However you get the book, it's a great read, if I do say so myself, filled with unexpected twists, turns, horrors, not all of them nuclear, some of them are musical theater. And the best part is, you will be helping to support the work of this show. Now for this week's feature... We are going to check up on two radiologic hotspots in the American Southwest. First, we're getting another update on the WIP site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, home of the Valentine's Day radiation leak. And we'll be talking again with Don Hancock, Director of Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Don has been following events at the WIP site since before it opened 15 years ago. He's been a fabulous source for us on exactly what is known and not known about the February 14 underground explosion and subsequent radiation leak. This week, he clarifies some misconceptions that showed up in the media that originated from the EPA. Don, at the town hall meeting two weeks ago, it was revealed that another drum with plutonium-laced waste is suspected of having ruptured. What is currently known about it? There's a lot of confusion. What DOE has said, both Carlsbad and Los Alamos, is that they, in fact, don't have evidence that there is another ruptured container. So on the one hand, they're definitive about that. Uh, The flip side of that, of course, is that they are spending lots of money putting in a supposedly state-of-the-art boom system in the area of contamination, room 7 of panel 7, so that they can have cameras go through the whole room uh, on the top and up and down the stacks to try to take pictures of as many containers as possible to, in fact, determine whether there are more ruptured drums or not. So... So it's a it's a confused situation. 
DOE was not as clear as they should have been, for which I blame DOE. And then reporters trying to report on what was said both at the town hall and earlier that week at a New Mexico state legislative hearing weren't sure what they heard and what to report. So there got to be confusion about the fact that Los Alamos testified to the legislative hearing that there was a second container that they were very concerned about in the underground at WIP, but that's different than saying it had, in fact, leaked, which the Los Alamos person, and I was at that hearing and testified at that hearing, so I have first-hand knowledge of what was said. He did not say, the Los Alamos person did not say that the drum had breached, and subsequently it, it wasn't either. It's one of these unfortunate circumstances where DOE is not clear about what they know and don't know. DOE, of course, has a history of stating things inaccurately, which people are aware of. Therefore, they've made a confusing situation more confusing, in my view. Right now, there's only pictures of one container that's breached in room 7 of panel 7 at WIP. There is clearly the possibility that there is more than one container breached, and I've been saying that for a while because, A, most of the containers in that room that we have no pictures of and no way of knowing whether they're breached or not, B, the amount of contamination that seems to have been released, and again, we don't have definitive data on how much was released, but the data of what's been released seems to make it unlikely it could have all come from this one container that's been identified as being breached. So there's at least circumstantial reasons to believe that there could be more than one, but we don't know that for sure. And DOE doesn't know either that there is more than one or can't demonstrate, in fact, that there is only one. What a mess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are there workers underground at this time, and how close can they get, and what does their work consist of at this time? The DOE schedule is to send workers underground four or five days per week. I don't know right now, as we're speaking, whether there are people underground, but as a general matter, yes, last week and the week before and this week, there are people underground. What they're supposed to be doing is to not go into the areas that are known to be contaminated, what they are trying to do is to go into areas that they expect are not contaminated and actually do sampling so they can determine whether there's contamination or not. They're trying to get the waste hoist, the main elevator that historically has taken workers and waste from the surface to the underground. They're trying to get it back up and running so that they can take heavier equipment into the underground in order to start putting roof bolts into the ceilings to keep the ceilings from collapsing in various portions of the underground. Is that a real risk at this time? Sure. The nature of the salt mine is one of the positive attributes of putting the waste into the salt at WIP is that over time the salt moves and fills in the void spaces. That happens on a regular basis. The salt is moving a few inches a year. What that means is, depending on where you are in the mine, there is pretty constantly, usually on a weekly and certainly on a monthly basis, there's work done in terms of putting rock bolts and mesh and other things to stabilize the salt so the ceilings don't collapse, the floors heave up or come up, and so they have to be remined or rescaled off and the walls the same way. So the fact that that hasn't been done now in the last eight months means there is strong concern on their part that some of the areas could start having pretty major problems. And, of course, it would be very bad to have ceilings collapsing or chunks of the ceiling falling down because that unsafe for the workers, and if it was happening in contaminated areas, it will further scatter the contamination. 
what other work are the workers doing underground that you know of? Because of the fire, there was, as you remember, there was a fire on February 5th that preceded by nine days the radiation release. Because of the fire and the fact there hasn't been maintenance in the underground for about eight months, they're also going back in and checking all the telephones, the communication system, the, all the electricity to try to make sure that things function. That problem was compounded by... The Carlsbad and Whip area have been having very large amounts of rain, generally, and very large amounts for them, uh, several inches in a day, which created not just at Whip, but in the community as a whole, some flooding and electrical problems. So all of the power in the underground was out for a couple of days two weeks ago. And so they're sending people in the underground to do the kind of maintenance that they would normally do but haven't been able to do for the last seven months to get the communications equipment going, get the electrical circuits back running, uh, changing batteries on battery-operated equipment and all of those kinds of things so that they can – their goal, the reason they're doing all of that – is to have the goal of being able to get heavier equipment and more workers into the underground so they can do this kind of stabilizing we're talking about. And ultimately, since they're not going to decontaminate, what they're going to do about sort of containing the contamination. Speaking of the contamination, there's been a report that plutonium was found in Carlsbad. What, if anything, is being done to increase radiation monitoring or checking to find out where the plume from the release may have ended up? Additional monitoring has been established by Nuclear Waste Partnership, which is the contractor for WIP, both on-site and off-site, as far away as Artesia, which is about 40 miles away, as well as in Carlsbad. The Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center, the group that first found and disclosed the fact that there was release from the WIP underground, is in the process and presumably in the next few days are going to have some additional monitoring that they're setting up, the stations that they're setting up as well. The state of New Mexico is doing some additional monitoring. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency did some additional monitoring for a while. So there's quite a bit. There's more than three times the number of air monitoring stations than there was before. So there's a lot more monitoring going on. In terms of the levels of contamination that are being detected for the last three months have all been, depending on the site, either non-detect, in other words, the amount of radioactivity is small enough that they can't detect it, or is what are considered small amounts that are consistent with previous contamination from nuclear bomb testing, fallout, et cetera, that exists in that area and, unfortunately, many other areas of the world. So there's no data that I'm aware of from any of those four sources that I just mentioned in the last two or three months that shows any contamination outside of the site beyond levels that existed before February of this year. There's a lot of official talk about a cleanup or recovery plan. Is there currently a real plan or just a plan for a plan and a lot of talk? This afternoon, September 30th, this afternoon, there's supposed to be a release by the Department of Energy of a document that is supposedly some portion of the recovery plan. It's been described to me as being an executive summary of the recovery plan. I am confident, based on my conversations with people over the last several months, that I and other people will find what's being released today very inadequate in a lot of ways. But from DOE's standpoint, this is something Secretary Moniz promised would be out by the end of September, which is today, when he was in Carlsbad about uh, seven weeks ago. So something is coming out. As I've asked questions to people who've been involved with it, it's clear to me that it won't have a lot of the information that we actually need, but will presumably give us a little bit more insight into what DOE is thinking about the fact that they won't decontaminate the underground because they can't do it, that they will have to spend a lot of time, effort, and money 
in essence rebuilding the facility, including a new exhaust shaft from the surface to the underground, new underground drifts, a new underground ventilation system at an unknown time frame and an unknown cost, although they may provide estimates about cost and schedules in what they release today. Let's switch over into the politics of this, which seem to be heating up. Four managers at Los Alamos have reportedly been removed from their positions dealing with transuranic waste. What, if any good, do you see that move is doing, or is it just a cosmetic, let's have some scapegoats and move them out of the way? It's likely some of both of those things. The four people that have been removed, we don't know for sure exactly where they are. All of those people have been in responsible positions at Los Alamos for, in one case, for actually many years, and in three cases for the last three years, people who were brought in from other sites to try to fix what were long known as problems at Los Alamos with handling transuranic waste. So... They brought in outside expert folks from other sites to hopefully fix things at Los Alamos, and then what happened, happened. Depending on Los Alamos, experts over the years hasn't been sufficient. Bringing in outside experts haven't been sufficient. So on the one hand, the fact that major mistakes were obviously made, uh, the Los Alamos permit was violated, means that there ought to be some accountability. So on the one hand, the fact that there has been some accountability is a good thing from my standpoint. On the other hand, there's no reason to believe, based on that experience that I just mentioned, that goes back for decades, not just three or four years, that they're still going to get it under control. A a fundamental problem, of course, is not just that this is a long-term problem, that waste that's been at Los Alamos for 30 years, they're now trying to deal with it and chip it to whip, but Los Alamos virtually every day and certainly every month keeps creating new transuranic waste and plans to do so essentially forever because it continues its nuclear bomb production mission, and so that inevitably means that it's creating more waste on a regular basis. So they haven't fixed the long-term problem. They haven't even identified all the parts and the causes of the long-term problem. And they continue to create more waste. So the Los Alamos problems are, in terms of the Department of Energy's plans and programs, will continue to go on and, in some senses, increase forever. Now, the Department of Energy has decided to take cleanup work at Los Alamos away from the National Nuclear Security Administration and give the job to the Office of Environmental Management. How much, if any, difference do you see that is making? Well, it's something that has, uh, state officials in New Mexico have been arguing for for a number of years, even in the previous uh, administration, uh, Democratic administration. So it's something that the state thinks will make some improvements or could make some improvements. And that may be the case. However, I have two major concerns about it. Number one is because of additional money apparently going to be going to WIP for this recovery operation, a lot of the money that is shifted to WIP will be coming, in my view, out of the Los Alamos budget. So whoever the contractor uh, is and whoever the responsible DOE people are, they're going to have probably significantly less money to deal with the Los Alamos problems than they have, which isn't necessarily going to mean that they're going to be able to do a lot better job. Secondly, we don't know who the new contractor is going to be, and it may, in fact, still be the same contractor. In other words, Los Alamos lands, the existing contractor, the for-profit contractor for Los Alamos for both the nuclear weapons work and the environmental management work, that company is still who has the contract. So DOE would first have to decide they want to go out for bid and get a new contractor to bid on just the, not the $2 billion a year big Los Alamos contract, but the whatever, $150, $175, $200 million a year contract for cleanup. They haven't decided they're going to do that yet. Uh, They haven't decided what the requirements would be. They haven't decided whether lands, the 
contractor that has it would be eligible to bid for the new contract if there is, or what better, more qualified contractor might be interested and might be willing to have the contract. So all that DOE really announced is that they're going to do something the state's been asking them to do for 10 years or so, but the details of what's going to happen, how it's going to be done, which is important to determine whether or not it's going to be an improvement or not, we don't know. So it's posturing. Well, it's posturing at this point whether it will somewhere six months or a year or two down the line lead to improvements. We don't know yet. The first week in September, New Mexico Environment Department Secretary Ryan Flynn warned that Los Alamos and WIP could face steeper sanctions from the state because of what he characterized as Energy Department roadblocks that have protracted the investigation. What, if any, impact has this warning had? Well, none specifically that we know, although it might have contributed to the decision to terminate the four managers at Los Alamos. Um, I don't know that for sure, but it certainly could have contributed to that. Beyond that, we are still not seeing the kind of information that should be being made available by DOE. Um, as I testified to the Legislative Committee on September 16th, there are lots of specific information that is harder to come by now, including at WIP. So, for example, up until May 30th, when workers went into the contaminated area in the underground and got readings of the levels of and amounts of radioactivity, that information was made public. Since May 30th, there has been no information made public about the levels of contamination they're finding, nor the analysis that the laboratories have done from samples that have been taken. The excuse that the Department of Energy uses for not allowing that information to be publicly available anymore is that the Accident Investigation Board, the DOE investigation trying to look into what happened and issue a report somewhere around Thanksgiving, in theory, has that information. Well, I have no problem with them having that information, but there is absolutely no reason that it shouldn't be public now as well. So that's just one of a number of examples of the information that Los Alamos and WIP are making available to either the regulators, the Environment Department, or the public is actually worse now than it was two or three months ago. State Senator Peter Worth was repeatedly quoted in the media during the most recent town hall meeting as holding whips and Los Alamos' feet to the fire. He seemed rather ferocious about it. What, if anything, is his position in all of this? Peter Worth is a state senator from Santa Fe, New Mexico. He is the chair of the legislature's uh, Radioactive and Hazardous Waste Committee, which is the committee that's had uh, regular hearings since February, and its most recent one was on September 16th in Carlsbad that I mentioned earlier that Los Alamos testified at and I and other people testified at. So he's the chair of that committee, so he was involved in the hearing, and he was concerned, and he did a lot of questioning related to a subject we talked about a while ago about the drums, whether they're at Los Alamos that are, or at WIP that are suspect. And from his standpoint, some of what he was hearing on September 16th seemed contradictory to what he had been told by a different Los Alamos witness at his previous hearing a couple of months before. So he's concerned about all of the situation. What he basically can do is what he's been doing, which is to invite Department of Energy, Los Alamos, state people, other people to come to public hearings and answer questions from him and other members of the legislature. The legislature, however, has little legal authority over WIP as a federal facility that's primarily governed by federal law. The legislature is not in session to pass laws and won't be until starting January of 2015, and they'll be in session then for 60 days. So during the 60-day session from mid-January to mid-March, they could have additional hearings, they could pass legislation, but at this point, nobody is proposing any specific state legislation related to the WIP situation. Anything else you'd care to throw in at this time? Well, no, there will be more 
This is a continuing saga, a pretty sad one in a lot of ways, as we've been talking today. So I appreciate your interest, and there will be more to say after the recovery plan is released and after we get some more information and after the state does more, et cetera. So to be continued. We'll be in touch. That was Don Hancock, Director of Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The unwanted waste from Los Alamos that could not be accepted at WIP was shipped to Waste Control Specialists, WCS, just over the border in Texas. To learn more about what's wrong with that decision and some recent problems showing up at the site and with the Texas legislators charged with protecting people and the environment, I spoke with Karen Haddon, Executive Director of the Sustainable Energy and Economic Development, or SEED Coalition, headquartered in Austin, Texas. Karen Haddon, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks. It's great to be here. You recently attended a meeting of the Texas Low-Level Radioactive Waste Disposal Compact Commission at the Texas Capitol. What was the nature of that meeting, and what were the expressed concerns of the SEED coalition there? Well, this was one of many compact commission meetings where routinely applications to dispose of waste in West Texas get rubber stamped with very little discussion. The coalition has been raising concerns for a long time, and among them are the risk of water contamination and the risk of explosions due to the radioactive waste we have now received from the WIP site. And we also are concerned that there's radioactive material at the site And there is also a separate facility out there that takes toxic and corrosive hazardous waste. And we're concerned that over the long term, these things may be mixing. And in fact, right now, there's an effort to put some radioactive material in that hazardous waste facility. We think there's a need for better oversight of the whole facility and better protection of our health and safety. What are some of the specific problems. For example, with the hazardous waste site, this is actually close to three different radioactive waste disposal dumps, and yet at WCS there's the proposal to put the radioactive waste in the hazardous waste dump. What are they thinking, if you can (laughs) give us any insight into that? That has been our question. What are they thinking? We really don't know, and no one has analyzed the risks involved There seems to be an assumption that containers will never leak, and that's been proven to be false at numerous locations that take low-level radioactive waste around the country. And we don't want to be a huge experiment or have another huge experiment going on in the desert. And the site is very close to the Ogallala Aquifer. Some maps used to show that it was directly over the site. The maps got changed by the State uh, Water Development Board. And wasn't that under the influence of the owners of the WCS site to instigate the remapping of the location of the aquifer? Yes, their data, along with work by Texas Tech, was used to change the boundaries of the aquifer. And now it appears on maps to be a little further north, but very close to the site. The company acknowledges the presence of two water bodies, one called the Dockham Aquifer and one called the OAG water body, and the O is Ogallala. So there is clearly no impediment between that and the Ogallala Aquifer, although the company maintains that water will never go that direction. Uh, We are very concerned that major water bodies could be contaminated by radioactivity, And just for clarification, the Ogallala Aquifer is a major supplier of water to how many states is it? It lies beneath eight states, and that's major agricultural regions. It's a major drinking water aquifer. goes all the way up to the Dakotas, to the middle of our country. It's the breadbasket of our nation, so it is of great concern. Is WCS still accepting radioactive waste from either Los Alamos or that has been sent to it that has to be now deflected from it because they're not accepting? 
They're no longer accepting more of the transuranic waste that came from the WIP site that used to be buried a half a mile underground at that location. But in Texas, that waste is being placed into an open facility. It's about 180 feet deep, and only a little pea gravel is being put on top of it. And unfortunately, we cannot find evidence of any plan that has been developed, at least a written plan, of how they would deal with an explosion here if something similar happened to what happened at the WIP site. Do you know if zeolite has ever been considered to be dumped on the site at least to attract and fix any radiation that might transpire? I have never heard that mentioned for this site. I have been told by the director of the Radioactive Waste Division in a verbal conversation that what they have done is put just pea gravel on top of this waste. And they say that they are monitoring it, but watching it hardly does anything to prevent an explosion, and it's not a real plan for preventing one or dealing with an accident if one happens. Don Hancock told me that there have been recent heavy rains in the area. What, if any, impact has this rain had on the water safety concerns you have about the site? That's been a real problem. He's right. The Waste Control Specialist spokesperson, Rod Balzer, spoke at the Compact Commission about that, and he said they had received nine inches of rain in about two days recently. They also apparently have to pump out water every two weeks. So it's an ongoing problem at a site that is supposed to be dry. And a dry site was one of the most crucial features that um, should have been assured and put in place. It's such an important issue that three employees at the TCEQ in the Radioactive Materials Division actually resigned because they felt the site would never be safe in terms of isolating radioactive waste from water. So going back to the meeting that you attended last week on September 25th, what, if anything, was accomplished or is even able to be accomplished at these kind of commission meetings on low-level radioactive waste disposal? Very little is actually able to be accomplished, unfortunately. But what we do feel is important is for citizens to still be speaking up and pointing out the serious flaws with this plan. We will continue to call for a halt of disposal of waste at this site because of the risks of water contamination, because of the risks of explosion of some of the waste that's been brought in. And we hope to raise awareness and we hope to also create a record where when problems do occur later, no one can say, hey, this issue was never addressed or brought up. We'll have a long track record of saying we absolutely were concerned about this and those concerns were ignored. Anything else you'd like to say in conclusion? Well, we're hopeful that people knowing about this situation will help bring about change And we hope that we can bring about change before we do have a serious accident and that we can prevent contamination of waterways. From your mouth to somebody in power's ears. Karen Haddon, thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Karen Haddon, Executive Director of the SEED Coalition, headquartered in Austin, Texas. Nuclear Hot Seat will continue to talk with Karen, Don, and anyone else we can find who can shed light on what's going on with the WIP radiation leak as this ongoing story unfolds. So, hey, how do you like Nuclear Hot Seat? Do you appreciate the information? Do you tolerate my sense of humor? Well, help keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat does rely on your donations, yes, yours, you sitting right there, to meet the bills and stay available to us all. You can help us out by making a single donation in the equivalent of a cup of Starbucks. You can add the price of a nosh if you feel like splurging. You can also sign up for a small recurring monthly payment or put us on your year-end gift-giving list or just be impulsive and help us out. 
If you find that nuclear hot seat makes you laugh, helps you think, gives you understanding about the nuclear issues that impact us all, and helps you to not be so alone with what you are aware of, help us keep doing it. You can do so by going to nuclearhotseat.com, scrolling down on the homepage, clicking on the big red donate button and taking it from there. Whatever you can do to help. I don't know if you'll ever understand just how much it is appreciated. Activist shout out. Well, hey, thanks to all of you from this community who sent me birthday greetings yesterday. It is great to be able to share good times with those of you who share with me some of the most awful information on earth. I especially appreciate those of you who sent me leads to other stories. That's a great gift. It is what helps keep the information on this show fresh. Input from activists on the front lines all around the world. I mean it when I ask for your suggestions. I may not be able to take you up on it, or I will, but maybe not immediately. But everything you offer me is taken very seriously when it comes to finding stories, adding to stories, having a new angle on a story. And then there are those really juicy tidbits of embarrassment that I can use about the nuclear industry. This is truly the greatest gift you can provide me throughout the year. Your awareness of what is happening in your area and passing it along to me so I can either use it as a story, a numbness of the week, or just background information to hone what I'm sharing. So all of you out there, I hereby dub you all activists. Keep your eyes and ears open. You hear or see anything of interest, let me know. You never know. It might show up on the show. John Stewart, Shana Tova, Happy New Year, Booby. Your nuclear pundit, that's me in case you don't remember, is cooking up a special story for you that I believe you will find irresistible. Coming soon to Nuclear Hot Seat and a tweet near you. And that's a reminder for everyone to know that when you retweet and favorite each week's Nuclear Hot Seat tweets, they automatically go to John Stewart's daily show hashtag, New CNN Shows. So keep those retweets and favorites coming. Final thought. Be safe, be well, and if you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with. In case you haven't guessed, Yesterday's birthday signified that, yes, indeed, I am a card-carrying boomer. And that card is from Medicare. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 30th, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, NHK, The Guardian, Time Magazine, NPR, fukuleaks.org, and simplyinfo.org, renewableenergyworld.com, independent.co.uk, timesdispatch.com, chicagobusiness.com, albuquerquejournal.com, Paul Garner for the USS Reagan Sailors, calcoastnews.com, dailymail.co.uk, globalresearch.ca, NewYorkTimes.com, there are no sunglasses.wordpress.com, in containment, a film by Ian Thomas Ash, Diablo Canyon, World Nuclear News, and the ever sexy with a great personality nuclear hot seat Facebook community. You are cordially invited to join us, friend us, and tweet to John Stewart about us. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on AirProgressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes, and you can subscribe under Podcasts. You can also go to our nearly searchable website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And please make it an email, not a Facebook message, because it tends to get lost if it's on Facebook. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed for not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have permission to reuse this material as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call.
so many nuclear wake-up calls. Now, don't go back to sleep, because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.